How's everybody doing? We all excited to be here this morning? Hey, I don't know about you guys, but as we were getting ready to pray and that nice little uh, roll of thunder came through, it just reminded me of a verse in Revolution that says, then I heard some... Uh, Revolution. Thank you. Heresy. There we go. That's the first one. Judy, mark it. Judy gets the first one in the movie theater. Uh, the book of Revelation 19, uh, John records this. He says, then I heard something like a voice of a vast multitude, like the sound of a cascading waters and like the rumbling of a loud thunder saying, hallelujah. Hallelujah. Because the Lord... The Almighty has begun to reign. Can we get an amen for that? I mean, uh, man, I get overwhelmed. I don't know about you, but I get overwhelmed when I think about the reality that Jesus has already begun to rule and to reign on earth, and that someday that's going to come to, to full fruition when He returns, but that right now, He rules and He reigns in our hearts. Amen? Let's move on. Uh, I... Sorry, that was bonus. You can just do whatever you want with that. Well, uh, we're going to be continuing our series in 1 Corinthians. Uh, we've been in the middle of a section of 1 Corinthians where Paul kind of in chapter 11 started talking about what should happen when the church gathers. What should it look like? We know that Cor- Corinth is an extremely dysfunctional church. There's a lot of problems in the church. There's a lot of immaturity. Everybody's all about me and everybody's all about one-upping each other, right? We all have that friend that somebody tells a story and they have to tell a better story, right? Uh, usually that's the pastor. But, uh, you know, we, we all know what it's like to be there. And that was the whole Corinthian church. They'd made everything all about them and they had become so selfish and so self-centered and they'd started taking stuff from the world and bringing it into the church. So Paul says, hey, look, when you get together, we need to have some conversations about what happened. So chapter 11, he goes through the Lord's Supper and what that should look like. Verse 12, he starts getting into spiritual gifts and how to use our spiritual gifts. And then in verse chapter 13, he says, hey, look, all of this discussion that we're talking about, spiritual gifts, worship, none of it matters if there isn't love. So one of the first things we want to remind ourselves of is this principle of love, that that love covers everything that we do as a church. And then next Paul says, hey, look, in the first part of chapter 14, there are gifts that God has given to build up the church, and we need to be using those gifts to build up or to edify or to strengthen and encourage each other, not ourselves. Because again, the Corinthians were this extremely immature group of people that they took something that God intended for good and they started using it to promote themselves, right? I'm getting the signal to move this away from my head, all right? Is that better? We good? So they had taken their spiritual gifts and they were using them to build up themselves rather than build up the other people. And Paul says, man, you guys are just missing the boat here. So this morning we're going to continue to look at that second half of chapter 14 and and what that looks like. Um, Those of you who don't know me, I'm the lead pastor here at River Rock Bible Church. My name is Charlie Turner. My wife, beautiful wife, did the announcements this morning, and we have four kids. We have triplets that are eight years old, and then we have what we call our bonus baby, uh, Evie, who is four. And uh, we pray for the the people that are our oldest, the two boys and our daughter will marry. Uh, or, or about them, we pray for the one that our youngest will marry, all right? She, just so you know, like she is a handful. Um, so one of the things, when, when they were little, when they were real little, you know, I, I love sports, I love being physically active, 
we started thinking about, okay, what do we do? We've, we've already got three that are the same age. We've got one more coming up. So if, even if it's the two boys on one team and then one daughter on one team and another daughter on another team, that's three different games, three different practices every week that we've got to go to. So we've got to figure something out because I want them in sports. I want them to learn how to win. More importantly, I want them to learn how to lose graciously. I want them to be physically active, right? So we're like, what do we do? I said, hey, if we could find something where they practice and then they play and like it's all in one area, like that would be awesome. And if, if we could get it to where they were co-ed, at least for the triplets, that would be even better. So we got two games to go to instead of now three or potentially four. So my wife and I started doing some research and we came across here in Austin, there's youth rugby and it's awesome. They practice on Saturday morning and they play on Saturday morning. That's it. Like half a day and you're done. And I'm like, this is perfect, all right? So hand-eye coordination, running around, lots of running. And so we started looking into it. We wanted to be sure it was something that they could all do. And so we went to the website and we found this set of rules that they have listed there. And, and you'll see that, hey, Union Rugby, 15s, everything else is 7s Rugby, USA. Now, I want to draw your attention here to the pre-K. This is our youngest, our four-year-old. So our pre-K uh, age group. And then let's look at the rules Pure chaos, right? There are no rules. Like, they get it. If you've ever coached youth sports for three- and four-year-olds, you know that the rules don't matter. Well, here's the thing with the Corinthians. They were extremely immature. Spiritually speaking, they're like a bunch of three- or four-year-olds. So they've taken any sort of rules in order in their worship services, and they've just thrown it out. And so the Apostle Paul is going to write what we're going to read next, chapter 14, beginning in verse 26, and he's going to say, guys, we've got to have order in the church. We've got to have order in the church. We've got to have rules. Think about your favorite game. How fun would it be to play your favorite game if there were no rules? How fun would it be to watch your favorite sport if there were no rules? So Paul says, look, this, if we're going to build each other up, if we're going to love each other, there have to be rules that we set out here. So Paul says this, beginning in verse 26, What then is the conclusion, brothers? Whenever you come together, each one has a psalm, a teaching, a revelation, another language, or an interpretation All things must be done for edification. So the first thing I want us to see here is that worship, church, is a team sport. It's not a spectator activity. I mean, it's not like we go to church in a movie theater, right? When you come to a movie theater, you come, you sit in comfy seats, and you watch, and you enjoy the show. Paul says, that's not the way it's meant to be. That's not the way church should be done. And I really want to encourage this church. I know we're in movie theaters. We're in like really comfy chairs that rock and go back and forth. And we have our cup holders. And I've got my work cut out for me because I know y'all are going to be falling asleep. All right? My job just got 10 times harder. And I also, I want to thank the theater because it it appears that they knew that we were coming. uh, And they put up a sign that says, coming soon, little hellboy. They must have spoken to my mom about that. And... uh, so I, I appreciate the welcome. Uh, but seriously, when we come to church, we've got to come. What does it say? It says, how many? It says, when you come together, whenever you come to, together, what's it say? Each one. Each one. It means everyone. Everyone. And then Paul goes through a list of things. And the idea here is Paul is, is kind of being descriptive. He's not being prescriptive. He's not saying these are the only things you can do. And only these things, and if you don't do these things, then it's not church. He's just kind of giving some stuff like, hey, here's the stuff that y'all are doing, and everyone should bring something to participate. 
Everyone should be ready to be involved and to, to uh, where's Nicole? Is Nicole in here? Oh, right there. When she was going through a study that we have on discipleship, she said being a disciple means a lot more than just putting your butt in a seat, right? That's the reality. If we're going to be a church that's about being disciple makers, it's got to mean a lot more than just putting your butt in a seat. When you come and you sit and all you do is observe and you don't participate, you're not active and engaged with what's going on, then we become a spectator sport, and that's not God's design. God wants us to be a part of a team sport. God wants us focused on building each other up. In fact, uh, Paul says that everything should be done for edification. The word that he uses there is the same that he's used earlier in chapter 14, meaning to build up, and the word that's used actually means home builder. Think about that. We're the family of God, and we're called to be home builders. We're called to build God's family. We're called to build one another up, and that doesn't happen if we're like the union guys where there's like one guy leaning on a shovel, you know, five guys leaning on a shovel, one guy digging, right? That doesn't work. That doesn't work. Church is not a spectator sport. It's a team sport. Let's keep going. Look at verse 33. See what Paul says. He says, since God, uh, start in verse 32, he says, and the prophet spirits are under the control of the prophets, since God is not a God of disorder, but of God of peace. Skip down to verse 40. But everything must be done decently and in order. So Paul says, look, when you come together, these, you have all these gifted people. You have everyone who's coming expected to participate. How do we do that? Because that could be like the four-year-old rugby. It could be pure chaos if everybody's trying to participate at the same time. In just a minute, we're going to get into the, the little bit more of the details of that. But Paul says, hey, look. Uh, there's going to have to be order. And the reality is this, that our worship gatherings should reflect God's love for order and harmony, not chaos and strife. Our worship gatherings should reflect God's love for order and harmony, not chaos and strife. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think about order and I think about all this stuff, I think about, about rules. I think about OCD people, type A people. I think about like accountants, right? Everything, every number goes in a column, every column adds up, and everything balances at the end. If only Congress could learn how to do that, we'd be in great shape. But like that's what we think of, everything. We think about your mom who says, go clean your room. And I'm like, why do I need to clean my room? She's like, well, there's a sock door for socks, there's an underwear for underwear, and there's hangers for other clothes. And you're like, that's great. I know that's neat and orderly and put away, but I can see everything when it's out on the floor, and it's way easier. But mom says, no, you've got you to gotta have it ironed and buttoned down and put away. And when we think about a God of order, a lot of us think that that's what God is, that he's this rule-making God that says, do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that, and nothing could be further from the truth. When the Bible talks about the order that God desires, it's not a set of rules for the sake of rules. What we have to understand is that when God talks about order, it's really about harmony and peace. There's a, this theological concept that God is all about harmony, harmonious relationships, things working together in the way that they were designed to work together. I want us to flip real quick to Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. And we're going to see something here about God and his love and his desire for order in all things. Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, it says, Now the earth was formless and void, and darkness covered the surface of the watery depths. The Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the water. So what we see is that the earth was formless. That word formless, another way to translate that would be chaos. 
It means that there was just stuff happening. It was empty, meaning void, right? So the earth is formless and void, and what does God do next? He creates. What does he start with? He separates the light from the dark, creates day. He puts things in order. He separates the waters from the dry land, and he creates continents. He separates the waters above from the waters below, and he creates the atmosphere. So he's made order out of the chaos. And then what does he do? He begins to fill what he's created with meaning. He begins to fill it, fill the emptiness. He creates fish. He creates birds. He creates animals. And at the pinnacle of his creation is mankind. And when God first creates, everything is working in perfect harmony together. It's a perfect ecosystem that God creates. Everything is working in a harmonious relationship just the way that he designed it to work. And so when we think about this idea, it's the idea of the Hebrew word shalom. This idea of peace. Idea of harmony in our lives where everything is working together. And we understand this. We understand this. A great example of when things don't work together within the human body, when a cell decides it's going to behave in a way that it's not designed to, to behave, what happens? It's called cancer. And then that one cell replicates and replicates and replicates. And it ends up spreading throughout the whole body. We also see this with music. Imagine if Tony was down here playing the electric guitar this morning and he decides, you know what, I don't like the tempo that dirt set. I think I'm just going to play on my own. I'm going to play on my own. What happens? We have dissonance. We have dissonance. And then we have dirt chasing Tony out the back door. We have dissonance, but not only that, we have personal conflict. We have personal conflict, and that's not God's desire to have any of that. I love uh, football. Um, uh, baseball is my favorite sport, but I also love football. One of my favorite quarterbacks right now is a guy named Ryan Fitzpatrick. He used to play for the, the Texans. I think he's played, look at that. I mean, there's a good-looking good looking style right there. I don't know, shaved head, beard? I don't know. Uh, But I love this guy. I just love watching him play. I love watching his interviews, and I think he's played for every NFL team that's ever existed uh, recently. But imagine if Ryan Fitzpatrick calls the play in the huddle, he goes to the line, snaps the ball, and one of the offensive linemen says, you know what? I never get to tackle anybody. I never get to tackle anyone, and that's not fair. So he decides after the ball is snapped that he's just going to turn around and tackle Ryan Fitzpatrick. That's not going to work out well. You're going to have a little bit of conflict. You're going to have chaos there on the football field. It doesn't work. Everybody has a role to play. Everybody has a role that has to be fulfilled. And we understand this. We understand the need for order. I want us to think for a second about this. When God gives us rules, when he gives us order, it's not just rules for the sake of rules. It's so that there would be harmony. It's so that there would be peace within our lives. Now, Sex is one of those things that God created for us. We know that it's something that God created to be good, and and I want to challenge us on this. Even the most liberal-minded person when it comes to sex in the room, I want to challenge you on this. Imagine if every person across the world decided that they were only ever going to have sex with the person they married. Would that not be a good thing? Think about it. No more rape. No more incest. No more teen pregnancy. No more adultery. 
Can we not agree that if we would just follow God's one rule about where sex is designed to take place, that this world would be a much more harmonious place? Do you see how, how God has designed things? And his desire is not to just give us a set of rules of do's and don'ts, but his desire is for us to experience that peace and that harmony, not just in our lives, but in our worship services as well. Uh, we want to continue Uh, We understand that when there's peace and when there's harmony, not only does life get better, but the church gets better as well. The church gets stronger. We have to use this harmony to edify each other in the church. And if we use them in another way, if we use our spiritual gifts in any other way than what God intended, what we end up with is strife and conflict and chaos. And that's not God's desire for us. So what does that look like in a worship gathering? Paul's going to tell us, look at verse 27 says, if any person speaks in another language, there should be only two or at most three. So what Paul's saying is, hey, if you're going to have people speaking in tongues, here's, here's the guidelines for that. He says, two, and if you absolutely have to, three. And then he goes on and he says, each in turn, and someone must interpret. But if there's no one to a person, that person should keep silent in the church and speak to himself into God. So what's he saying? He says, look, the gift of tongues, as we saw last week, everything that happens within the church when they gather is meant to, to bring meaning, to bring understanding to something. And so if you have the gift of tongues and there's not an interpreter there to tell everyone else what you're saying, then you're not bringing clarity, you're not bringing understanding, you're not bringing meaning. So Paul says, shut your mouth, stand off to the side, and just talk to God. That's not the time, that's not the place. Right? So he puts some structure on it. Verse 29, Paul goes on and he says this about prophecy. He says, two or three prophets should speak and the others should evaluate. Well, who, who are the others? We're going to come back to that in just a minute. But if something has been revealed to another person sitting there, the first prophet should be silent. For if you can all prophesy one by one so that everyone may learn and everyone may be encouraged and the prophet's spirits are under the control of the prophets, since God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. So what is Paul saying here at the end? So he's, just like he's given rules and order for those who are speaking in tongues, he gives rules and order for those that are going to speak prophecy, that are going to reveal some things to the uh, the church. And he tells them exactly how it should be. And this last section, he says, look, this um, this is not something that you're just free to do whatever you want. Verse 29 tells us that prophecy is to be, to be used under scrutiny, that there should be someone, somewhere, or a group of people that is listening to what the prophet is saying and measuring that against Scripture and saying, okay, who, who needs to hear this? Is this accurate? Right? Does this line up with the rest of God's Word? Is it accurate? Is there any weight to this? Who needs to hear it, and how do they need to hear it? How do we communicate it? And here at River Rock Bible Church, we have decided that that is the elders, right? The elders of this church are the ones who, if someone says, hey, I've got a word from God, we listen to it, we say, all right, we've listened, what is God saying about this? Does it jive with scripture? And then we figure out who needs to hear this. Is it everybody? Is it one person or is it nobody? Uh, And then we figure out how do we communicate that? So uh, that term others, I think Paul leaves it intentionally vague because I I think he wants each church to be able to decide who that group of people is. Could it be the other prophets? Could it be those with the gift of discernment? Could it be the elders? We're not sure. I think Paul leaves that up to each, each church to decide. So then he goes on and he says that the, the prophets 
spirit is under their control. What's he saying? He's saying, look, just like tongues isn't something where all of a sudden you just have this out-of-body experience and you stand up and you medulla oblongata, right? And you just start going and all this stuff. Paul's saying, when you're a prophet, you have the gift of prophecy. It's not like the oracles that you see in the, the Greek pantheon and the Greek cult where they just stand up and they're like having this out-of-body experience and they're dancing around. He's like, that's not the way it is. God has given you this gift and he's given it to you in order, which means that it's something you can control. You don't just stand up and start speaking out, right? So he's saying there's got to be order in the way that we do this, and Paul's trying to to bring that. Um, Prophecy, real quick, just as a reminder, is that we're able to discern what God is saying and communicate that message to people in in unique unique ways. And I'd encourage you, if you want to take the time, go back and read through Acts. Look for a man named Agabus. He shows up two times, and you'll see a man who has the gift of prophecy in how he uses it. But all of these things, Paul's saying, look, when we do these things, they've got to be done in order. And I love that when he says, hey, those of you that are speaking in tongues, if there's not an interpreter, sit down and be silent. Those of you that are prophesying, if someone else says, hey, I've got something to say, it's not like they stop mid-sentence. They would finish what they're saying, and they would sit down and say, I'm going to yield the floor to, to Greg. Greg's got something, he's going to come on up and speak. Come on, Greg. No, I'm just joking. Uh, it was very, very orderly. And I love, I love that he says that. It reminds me of D.L. Moody, a very famous evangelist back in the late 1800s, early 1900s, was, was preaching, and uh, he was preaching at this service, and he asked someone to come up and pray towards the end of the service, and the man just kept praying and praying and praying. And praying, and D.L. Moody finally got up and he says, hey, while our brother finishes praying, we're all going to stand and sing this hymn, right? And so he's like, hey, we got to do things in order. I I love that story, right? Because we've got to keep everyone else in mind. And so we see this idea of order taking place. So we've already talked about who are the others. Here at River Rock Bible Church, that's the elders. That's the way we've decided to do things. Um, So if you feel like, hey, I've got this message that I want to deliver to the church. And let me tell you, the, the right way to go about that is you come to one of the elders, you come to me and say, hey, I want to talk to you guys about delivering this message. I want to talk about sharing this. And we believe that God has entrusted our elders with the shepherding of this flock. And we'll figure out, hey, what's the best way to get that taken care of? Let's go back uh, to verses 33 and 30 through 35. How many of you guys have been reading ahead? Anybody? All right. So you guys know what's coming, all right? Buckle up. How much time we got left? Not a lot. All right. This is where we get a little controversial, and I'm going to tell you, you're not going to like what you hear at first, but hang in there with me, all right? So verse 33, Paul goes on. He says, since God is a God of, uh, not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the churches of all the saints, the women should be silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be submissive, as the law also says. If they want to learn something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church meeting. Okay, all right, how good. You guys are still here. Nobody walked out while I was reading that. So what do we take from this? What do we take from this? We're going to understand this a little bit more, but there's an overarching principle that we're going to go back and look at some other verses, and I want you to know and recognize that it's not just the women that Paul has said to remain silent, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that in a second, but here's the principle I want us to take away. Orderly worship, where everyone participates, requires self-control and submission. Orderly worship, where everyone participates, 
uh, requires self-control and submission, right? And that's, again, that's not just for the women in the room. So what does this mean when Paul says that the women should be silent? Well, there's some chauvinists out there uh, who would say that, well, Paul's talking about ordering the church, and if the women don't talk, then there'll certainly be order. That would not be my opinion, right? That's not what he's saying here. Uh, what Paul is saying, there's, there's a ton of different views on this. And, uh, I mean, you could read hundreds and hundreds of pages about what Paul is saying about this. But I want to remind you that back in chapter 11, Paul has already said that women are, have the right to pray and prophesy within the service. He's already said in verse 26 that each one should come prepared to engage in the service. So this doesn't make sense. Why would Paul say speak and then turn around and say don't speak? What's, what's happening here? Well, uh, what's interesting is that Paul has already liberated the women from the Jewish background and the synagogue model where the men sat on one side, the women sat on the other side. The men were able to sing and pray and participate where the women sat in silence. And in the Greek, ekklesia, ekklesia just means gathering, assembly. When they went to political activities, again, the men were the only ones that were allowed to speak, and the women were required to remain absolutely silent. And it, it's just mind-blowing that Paul would say, hey, participate, and then turn around and say, no, be silent. So what's happening here? Let me tell you what I see here in the text. Go back to verse 27. Paul says, if any if any person speaks in another language, there should be only two or at most three, each in turn and someone to interpret. So Paul says, hey, if you're going to use the gift of tongues, here's what I'm talking about. Here's my topic. If you're going to use the, the gift of tongues, it should be this many, one or two. And then he's going to give a little bit of commentary on that. And he says, hey, there's got to be an interpreter. There's got to be this and there's got to be these requirements met. So he gives some commentary on that. And then skip down. Uh, and he goes on to the prophets in verse 29. He says two or three prophets should speak, right? So that's his introduction to the, the prophets and them using their gifts. And he goes on and he gives some commentary on that in verses 30 and following. He says, but if something has been revealed to a person sitting there, the first prophet, it should be silent, right? So that's his commentary and he goes on a little bit more. Then we have the second half of his thesis statement, English majors, right? So this is his title sentence. He says, two or three prophets should speak, and the others should evaluate. Now, what I think is happening here is, when you look at the text, what I see is that Paul is saying, when he says for the women to remain silent, he's speaking only about that portion of the service where the prophecy is being evaluated. Right? He's not saying this directly, but indirectly, what, what Paul is saying, what I see in this, is that Paul says, hey, when it comes to the time of evaluating the teaching and the prophecy of the church... This is where I want the male leadership of the church to be involved. Okay? And he goes on and he says, Ladies, if you have questions, you should ask your husbands at home. Okay? And so what do we do about women who aren't married? Well, let me tell you, every single one of us elders has email. Every single of our staff members have, have email. Why does, why does God do this? Why does he set things up this way? Um, some people say... <coughs> You know, when they look at this, they want to say, look, I, we think that the women remaining silent in church should be enforced from the time they walk in the doors to the time they walk out. And that will bring order. And I don't agree with that. I think you, you can't connect what Paul is saying 
in the previous sections and even in verse 26 that, hey, everyone should bring something. And then he tells them to be silent. I think Paul is talking about that section where the prophecy is evaluated. Think about that for a second. If I were to get up here and teach, and then my wife were to start weighing in because she disagreed on something that I taught, is that going to bring harmony? Think about the last time you had maybe a public disagreement with your spouse. How harmonious did that feel? Right? So I think what Paul is saying is, hey, during this one section, this is where I want the male leadership of the church to step forward and be responsible for this. In order to keep order, Paul says, uh, I, want, I want this to, to be the way that it takes place. He says, look, if you don't agree or you don't understand, go home and ask your, ask your husbands. And in fact, I love that the form of the verb that he uses there is not just ask, it means interrogate. It means interrogate your husband. So think about evaluating the prophecy, evaluating the teaching. That means, ladies, you're expected to be listening and listening to, to pay attention, like, does this line up with the rest of Scripture? And men, that means that you've got to be listening and paying attention, knowing that your wife is not just going to say, what did you think of the message? She's going to interrogate you. She's going to say, why did Charlie say that? How could he get this out of that passage? You need to explain this to me. And you actually, wives, you get to get your husband into the Word of God that way. You get to get your husband into the Word of God that way. Now, uh, I think what Paul is trying to do in this section is he's, he's trying to group people together in meaningful groups and preserve the order that way so that, so that conflict can be eliminated, that confusion can be eliminated. And when you have this time where the evaluatings take place, Paul says, hey, let it happen this way. Let it happen this way so we can keep order, so that we can keep all the things moving and eliminate the conflict. How many of you guys have ever watched volleyball, high school, college level volleyball, anybody? I had a lot of friends when I was in high school that played volleyball, and one of the things that always stuck out to me is how conflict was handled on the volleyball court. You see, a lot of times there'd be a close call, or there would be something wrong with the equipment, or the floor would get slippery, and here's how that, that works in volleyball. The team captain calls timeout, goes over and confers with the coach, tells her what, what she's seeing. And then the coach says, yeah, yeah, I agree with that. Let's go over. You need to go talk to the referee. So then the volleyball team captain only goes over to the referee and says, hey, here's what I saw. I think that was an unfair call. I just want, I'm, I'm asking that you would pay a little bit more close attention. Or, hey, we've got a wet floor over here. Can we get someone to clean it up? Now, there's other players, six, seven other players on that court. And they could easily say, that's not fair. It's not fair that only the team captain gets to go over and talk to the referee. Why is it that only the team captain talks to the referee? I don't know, but it works. It keeps the order. It keeps the, the whole team from rushing and everybody yelling at once and the fans coming from out of the stands and the coach and the players on the bench all going over and yelling at the referee and the referee saying, I have no idea who to even start to listen to. They have a designated person that goes, that handles the conflict, that handles the discussion on behalf of the team. I don't know why it's that way, but it works. It keeps the order. So the uh, next question is, well, why not tell the men to keep silent? Because they would be more than happy to, right? We know this about men. They would be more than happy to sit back in their passivity and be silent and just go home and flip the channel. 
And so I think one of the things that God is doing is he's saying, look, I have, I have created order within the family and within the church, and I have asked men to lead in this way. I've put them in this role. And in order to keep that moving forward, I want them to be the ones to evaluate because I need them leading. I need them leading. This is the, a unique role. And women, you should, be, you should be glad that your husbands are given that burden of leadership. Otherwise, they would just sit at home and change the channels. Just changing the channels and they would check out. So I think God has put them in this position of leadership to keep them fully engaged. And Paul wraps up with this in verse 36. He said, did the word of God originate from you or did it come to you only? What's he saying here? He's saying, Corinthians, there are thousands of churches everywhere throughout the world right now that have all gotten the gospel, they've all gotten the same instruction, and they all are doing church in an orderly way and they're all following this same pattern. Every single church is doing it that way, except you. Where do you think the problem is, Corinthians? You think it's all these other churches who have read the Scripture and studied it and understood it this way? Or do you think it's with the one? You think it's with the one that's struggling? Paul goes on and he says, he says, if, everyone, if anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should recognize that what I write to you is the Lord's command. But if anyone ignores this, he will be ignored. Therefore, my brothers, be eager to prophesy. Do not forbid speaking in other tongues, but, in ev- but everything must be done decently and in order. Let's pray. Heavenly Father.